Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We are joined by John Gentry to talk race engineering and his long and successful career. We're so used to the role of the race engineer in motorsport that too often we take for granted what it involves and the many remarkable people who do that job. So today's podcast is a chance to speak to one of the most versatile and experienced race engineers probably in world motorsport. I'm your host, Ed Stewart, and my guest is John Gentry, whose CV is a who's who of big-name drivers, well-known teams, also includes success of two-wheeled machinery as well as four. So uh, a very diverse and uh, and, and long career, I guess. It's remarkable just looking through your through your CV. <laughs> Does it feel like it's been going on for that long? Um, yes, it, uh, it has been a long time, actually. You know, I mean, if you, I was born in 1950, so that was the time when Grand Prix, Grand Prix racing started, and somehow I got involved in it in, later in life, and I've loved every minute of it, uh, as you say, in, uh, on four wheels and two wheels. And I think maybe one of the few guys that have managed to do that or, or wanted to do it. Yeah, and certainly done it with, uh, with great success. I mean, we'll, we'll touch on many years of this, but yeah, just so many teams, Formula One teams, touring car teams, 
uh, most cycle Grand Prix teams just just absolutely astonishing. So we'll uh, yeah we'll, we'll I'm sure have some great stories to hear from that. I'm also joined by James Newbold, uh, making one of his rare appearances on our on our podcast. Of course, editor of All Sports Engineering Supplement, which is uh, obviously why you've got. You have, we've got John in basically because he's also contributing to that. What gives us a chance to plug engineering well, for those who aren't familiar with it? What the engineering supplement is? Well, first of all, thank you very much, Ed, for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, the engineering supplement is every other month within Autosport magazine. Um, it's a chance to showcase some of the people that um, you know, like John, that actually are integral to making motorsport tick. Some of the innovations that have changed motorsport for the better um and some that haven't quite worked out as planned and, and digging into those stories uh, and actually showcasing you know what it is to be an engineer so that you know hopefully some of the people who are reading the magazine um and also can find this on autosport.com slash engineering um can you know find out for themselves whether that's something that they want to do because of course you know there's many ways to get involved in motorsport whether that's as a driver as a mechanic as an engineer or even as a journalist as 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 we are so um hopefully whether you're familiar or not with it um you'll see some interesting subjects appearing out every other month in the magazine well john we, we talked about race engineer role how how do you define it obviously a large part of your career has, has, has been that obviously you've also done design work draw some work sort of some of the sort of driver management elements within within teams but race engineer is probably what you're best known as and it's a it's a broad definition isn't it and uh and quite a broad, broad job so how, how would you characterize what the race engineer does uh yeah i think it's it's very difficult there's there's different types of race engineers there there are guys who who um who delve into data and and uh, discuss everything to to the end of the earth but um what what you're really looking for is being able to get the confidence of the guy who's driving your car if you're if you're with a new driver to you to you and you you go testing or whatever and the the first couple of changes you make is is uh, positive it, the driver expects it because that's what you've told him is going to happen. Uh, he goes faster and uh, he has the confidence in you and that's it. Um, if a driver doesn't have confidence in you, then you might as well go home. Um, and that's even more prominent in motorcycle racing because those guys, you see them fall down and they jump up and run after their bike and try to get on it and go again. But the next day they are hurting a lot and it does compromise them. So they have to be 100% sure about what you're doing. And actually we should say mention of, of, of bikes there. Even though the majority of your CVs four wheels, there is some successful stints in two wheels as well, but also it sounds like sort of motorbikes are almost your your first love. So you've got a bike collection and, and it sounds like maybe that was that your kind of access point into motorsport that, that you loved bikes or is that, that something that came along a bit later um no it wasn't it wasn't really okay when i was young i did i did mess about with a, a bsa bantam and things like that but um cars were really what i wanted to to get involved in but as as time went by i i uh, appreciated a lot more about what was going on in bike racing if you like um, and I, I think I was very lucky to actually 
have the opportunity to 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 engineer two wheels and four wheels. Um, the the first time with the Suzuki Grand Prix team was just through a chance meeting with the with the manager uh, of the 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 British based Suzuki team. They're the only Grand Prix team, 500cc Grand Prix team that were based in the UK. And um, I met him at the airport. We were waiting for a bus to, to take us to the car park. He, he had all his Suzuki kit on and I just asked him how they got on at that weekend. And he, he asked me what I did and we were just on the, you know, just chatting away. And he, he said, okay, if you want to come to the workshop, you're welcome and you can have a look around. It was the old Surtees workshop uh, down near Crawley and uh, in, in Edenbridge. And um, I went down there, took advantage of that and enjoyed a, a lunch out with him and, and have a close look at the bikes and so on. Um, then a bit later on, I was working with Benetton and we were testing in in uh, Imola and he got hold of me and uh, said, where are you? So I said, well, I'm in Imola, we're testing at the moment. And uh, he said, well, we're racing in uh, Misano at the weekend. Would you like to join us? And he said, the Japanese guys will welcome you. So I said, well, yes, okay. So I changed the diary a wee bit, um, went off down to, to Misano. And um, I had a great weekend, treated like a, a VIP and so on. Um, and that was it. Um, maybe just on a, a year later, he he called me and he said, the Japanese guys would like you to work with us. And I thought, wow, <laughs> what am I going to do? I can't turn this down. You mentioned earlier, John, mm. that you know, you're one of the few people that has done it or even wanted to do it to engineer both four and two wheels. At that point, had there been many people that you look to maybe for advice to say, well, what's the reference point that I go on here? Because a lot of the knowledge that I guess you'd accumulated from your time in Formula One and, and sports cars and so on up to that point was basically not really of much use. Uh, yes, I suppose uh, I suppose that's right. But the, the thing about getting the riders or the driver's confidence is there in both of them, maybe more so in bike racing. The team... Uh, I have to say it was <laughs> the team were good, especially with uh, Kevin Schwantz and, and Ron Haslam in the side. Ron was fantastic with me. He he helped me a lot um, through that first year with with Suzuki, and and Kevin too, and and even Kevin's father. You know they they travel around in a in a motorhome, so it's a tight knit sort of um, uh, sort of deal. And um, it it took me probably three or four months to become accepted into motorcycle racing. You know, the, the mechanics used to make the changes to the bike and the rider would just go and try it, you know. Um, and I, I tried to bring some of the Formula One, Formula Two um, engineering philosophies into how you go about it, you know. Um, and gradually it got through, um, partially because of Kevin's father. He, he used to sit in on the debriefs, if you like, and um, he, in the end he said to Kevin, he said, look, give this guy a chance. 
listen to what he's saying. I'm sure what he's doing eventually will work out. And that's what happened. Um, it, it did. I did two years with Suzuki. My, I suppose my, my home life was, was, uh, deteriorating a little bit. Um, so, uh, when I was offered a job back at, uh, Leighton House, uh, in 91, there was a bit of pressure on me to, to take that job rather than the, the gypsy-like style of motorcycle racing. I accepted that job, but as, as you guys know, um, it went bust at the end of 91. And um, I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> it's gone wrong for me, but never mind. Um, and that I was lucky. one of the, the third time that you'd been in a Formula One team that had run out of <laughs> and had pulled, its, <laughs> had pulled its funding after Alfa Romeo and Renault? Yeah, I mean, you could even include Shadow in that to a certain extent, but but um, um, the Renault thing was a was a big shame because um, I I actually had a three year deal with Renault. It was it was the first time I had a a serious contract, if you like, and and obviously Renault were a a, a big factory team. So um, that was eighty five. You were you were there? Yeah, that's that's right, eighty five. It was a it was a little bit strange for me because I they, I wasn't allowed, if you like, to to design anything. I could um, I could suggest things uh, and stuff like that, but I, I I wasn't almost wasn't allowed in the drawing office, um, and that was that was strange for me. So I asked if I could have a drawing board in my office. Um, which was close to the the race cars to the workshop, and the guy said yes, um, and um, the the chief draftsman got a bit upset about that, and uh, gradually we we got over that sort of difference. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. It, it meant that I could still um, get a pencil out and and do something and and say, hey, what do you think if we could try and do this? And then they would go away and, and complete the job, if you like. Because I guess it should be said at this stage, John, that although you know we've introduced you as a race engineer, you had done a lot of design and, and draftsman work in your previous team. So you weren't purely there as, as a race engineer turning up on the weekends. And, and that's an element that I think people probably misunderstand about race engineers is they see their role as as someone who's trying to optimize the performance on a race weekend but it, it's still a nine-to-five job in in the week as well and, and more yeah absolutely right i mean um in in those days you know the the, the 70s the 80s um as well as being a a, a race engineer in inverted commas you you were a draftsman or a designer, so you you had to produce drawings and so on. Uh, any any new components that were coming out, you had to make sure they got progressed in the right way. It wasn't just going to a circuit and and fiddling around with car setup and things like that. You you had to have another role in the, in the team. Um, for me, it was it was easy. Drafting was what I enjoyed. I, it was the only thing I was very good at at school, um, apart from playing football. Um, 
and uh, I was lucky enough when I left school to get a job in a contract drawing office, which which gave me experience in uh, all manner of engineering and even civil engineering. So um, I was in I was enjoying life. It was what I wanted to do, be a draftsman. Um, but I liked racing. I, I was, you know, always looking for something in racing. Difficult to find, of course, even in those days. But I, I was lucky enough to answer a, an advertisement in our local paper, the Surrey Comet, um, for a draftsman at AC Cars in Thames Ditton. Uh, you know, they're, they're known for the Cobra. But at that time, they also had a, a, a deal with the government to build three-wheel invalid carriages. So, so you had. A, I was lucky enough to get that job, and I enjoyed that job. Um, I got more and more into the racing bit. I went to Jim Russell and did the Jim Russell School and and all this kind of thing, just for myself, you know, just just for me. Um, and then came the the Autosport magazine, of course. I would I would go and get every Thursday, and there was the advert um, for uh, a draftsman in March engineering. Um, so I got that. I I was interviewed by a guy called Jeff Ferris. Jeff was a very good designer, still is. Um, He'd, he'd been working at Lotus. He'd done a lot of work on the 72. Um, and he, he interviewed me and, to all intents and purposes, gave me the job. So I owe Jeff a lot. Uh, he's a quiet guy, but um, without him, maybe I wouldn't have got a foot into a motorsport. Of course, the other guy there, Robin Hurd, at the time, he, he too was was very good to me and and those two guys I owe a lot to because they gave me the, the the chance if you like to get involved what actually happened there was uh, was was quite quite good for me not not good for Jeff because I think Jeff um, Jeff left <laughs> after about six months of, of me being there that left me as the only guy in the drawing office, so to speak. Robin would come along and, and sketch some ideas and uh, then he'd say, can you, can you take that to its, uh, its final being? And uh, that, was, that was good. You know, Robin's a very clever guy and uh, you, you learn a lot from these people. Not only the, the guys like Robin, but the mechanics, everybody. You're learning a lot all the time. Are trying to understand what their job's like, uh, how their job could be easier, maybe, um, all, all these kind of things. And at that time as well, March was not just in Formula 1, it was in Formula 2, it was in sports cars, it was trying to be everything to all men. So I guess your experience was immediately being thrust in lots of different directions at all different times. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely right. Um, there were there were a couple of uh, satellite draftsmen who who worked from home. Um, one called John Clark, and the other one Martin Slater. Martin went on to to do the uh, Hewland thing, I think. Um, those guys worked from home, 
um, and I, but I was the only one there in the in the drawing office uh, to try and take care of of what was going on. A lot of the time, the the, the fabricators or the mechanics would would make a bracket or something for themselves. If they did that, they they scribbled it down on a, a duplicating book and they'd rip the page out, go and make the piece, and they'd give me the book back. Of course, you had to produce a proper drawing of it so we could we could uh, produce them. I mean, we, we were really, at that time, producing production racing cars as well as the Formula One and also the Can-Am. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to be in March at an exciting time you know, not not so long after they started. Okay, I missed the first year of 1970. I joined just towards the end of 1970. But it was a fantastic place to be. A lot of enthusiasm, good drivers, you know, Ronnie Peterson, Nicky Lauder, as you've said. Um, these guys were, were there. Uh, Andrea Diadamich. Um, even though he, he came along with the Alfa Romeo engine and we put that in the back of the 711. Um, and uh, I, I still know Andrea now. I mean, <laughs> I, I still do little jobs for him from time to time. Um, so th those relationships last a long time, you know. Um, and for me, that's, that's another sign that, they appreciated what you did. It's interesting what you said about kind of how how the job, I guess, changes. Let's say if, if somebody was a, a race engineer through all of your career, but you were doing all this design work and that kind of thing. And later years, your single seater work has has been in things like GP two in Toyota Racing Series. You've done Auto GP, all spec series, which does mean it's a much much narrower focus now. And it's it is interesting how. You don't. I guess if you're if if you're a young guy coming in now to this sort of thing, it'd be a much more narrow job window you're you're working in as things become more special. So you think about even some of the the sort of great names we used to in Formula One, people like Adrian Newey. People think of him as an aerodynamicist, but he's an all-round engineer. He was a race engineer to Johnny Giacotto in F2, Mario Andretti even in in IndyCar. So you get these people kind of of perhaps we say you're who have this really broad grounding. And then nowadays it's much more much more specialised. But just looking at the the challenge of race engineering, say in, in spec single seaters, is that a much more narrow and slightly less fulfilling job because of that? Because you can't do anything with the car; it's just parts off the shelf you 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 put on, and you just have to make the driver confident and make setup tweaks to not to make it too put down too much how, how limited it is. But it, it's not the same job in in a way, is it? Or it's part of the same job, but not the whole not the whole. You're, you're absolutely right in what you say. I mean, if if we look at what goes on now in, in motorsport, most of them are, are one-make series. You know, okay, GP2 or Formula 2 now um, was probably the pinnacle of that for me. It was, it, it was the next step down from F1. But you, you had to do what it said in the book. You know, I, I can recall a team getting getting uh, excluded from a result, a practice result, because they got countersunk screws instead of button head screws in their rear wing uh, gurney flap, you know. And things like that were, 
were ridiculous for me. I, I think that um, from an engineering point of view, I think that was a negative thing. The, the, engi the engineer has the book and he, he can't go outside of that book. You know, so your your I don't know your your options are, are not the same. You know, it takes you, the problem you, solving elements out of it, doesn't it? Yes, if there's you, a problem there, you just have you, to work around it. You can't fix you it. can't you can't change the the suspension geometry if you like. You know, uh, um, when when I was working at Kopasuka, um we we would it was easy to change the geometry because it was plates bolted onto the to the chassis. Um, and we used to experiment quite a bit with that to try and improve the car, changing roll centers and things. But you can't do that now, you know. Um, all you can do is what there is in the book. And, and I think that's a shame. We, I don't think we have uh, at the top end of motorsport, I don't think we have a, a, a formula where an engineer has freedom anymore and i think that shows how much difference then can an engineer you know with really good experience grounding in two wheels and four wheels someone like yourself make in a, a spec series that has very limited areas to do because in something like say the british touring car championship where it's not a spec series but it's very closely controlled you know people will often say that they'll look at how many different winners there were last year. I can't remember off the top of my head. It was 15 or, or something like that. Um, and say, well, it, it's contrived. But actually, it is, it's still engineers doing a good job to get the car to optimise at its peak level of performance. And some teams will have young engineers. Some teams will have, you know, who, you know, you could lazily say have fresh ideas versus, um, you know, an experienced engineer who has tried all these different things and knows that this setting will work better than this setting. So how much difference do you think can experience make in, in these you know, limited confines? I think um, if I look back a little bit, when, when I finished um, working with Yamaha uh, in the end of 1993, um, I, I found myself at TWR. With, and uh, helping them out with the design work on the on the Volvo project, um, and I think if you, if you speak to anyone at Volvo, they will say that was probably the best publicity uh, show they they did. So this was the 850 Estate that they raced. Yes, the yes, with the Estate car. Um, there was that was a fantastic time in in touring car racing for me. Because you could do almost what you wanted, you know. Okay, there were regulations, but you, you could use your imagination, you know. And we, we saw that through the, the estate car, then the, the, the saloon car, and then with the S40. Um, we, we were doing things that, um, that you could never do today in, in touring car racing. Um, okay. It became expensive, and that was part of the problem. I think. I think at the time it, we, um, or, or I'd invented a hexagonal uh, damper, um, and we made our own linear roller bearings, 
and all this kind of thing, because the damping was very important there in my mind. Um, I was very close to Olin's, and what we did with Olin's on their, on their uh, friction rig and so on just proved that those ideas were the way to go. Um, it cost a lot to produce the front strut of a, of a, a Volvo 850, but it was worth it. Now you, you don't have the choice. You, you have to use whatever it is. And I think every, everybody in touring car, or British touring car anyway, is, is using similar, similar parts, I think. Yeah. I don't even know that now, but um, you, you take away the, the imagination, if you like. And I think that's bad. Do you think you can make still make a difference though, given you know if you were, you know, parachuted into the British Touring Car Championship and and you were with you know set, I mean I'm thinking a couple of years ago you were with Romeo Ferraris weren't you in uh, um, TCR and I know you've done quite a, a bit of TCR work recently and that's a a similar situation where ostensibly the the package is is tried to be kept as as, as close to spec as, as is possible compared to something like the TC1 um, World Touring Car project that, that you worked on with Honda. Um, how much can you, you know, play about there and say, okay, actually I know that this is going to work versus... I, uh, you, you mentioned the Alpha. I mean, that, that was quite, um, quite an interesting job for me because... Um, it, for, for me, you have to evaluate what you've got, first of all. You have to understand how the car is, where, where it is. You, you can talk with the drivers and so on and so forth, but you, you have to work with it a little bit to understand it. Um, for, for me, on that car, there were some areas which were weak. So you, you once you understand which areas you, you want to to change or um, you you can suggest it to the team normally they they are positive and that's what was happening with the TCR alpha um, I think if you if you talk to Andrea Baliki for example he he drove that car for us in uh, Macau um, and he I'd known Andrea through uh, the Rebellion endurance racing team. Uh, fantastic driver. Very, very good driver for me. Um, and when he came to drive for us in Macau, he said, look, this car is as good as any of the other cars out there. But because it was um, maybe not a, a, a high-profile team, if you like, people looked down on it a little bit. Um, in the beginning, um, we had Michaela Chiruti. Mickey, Mickey was uh, very good. She's a very good driver. I worked with her in uh, AutoGP with Supernova. And then uh, she, she was driving the uh, Ferraris uh, Alpha. So that relationship was good. There was no doubt about that. Working with Mickey was good. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that she felt in the same way. But we had to define 
what was what we were able to improve on that car. Not, I don't say what was wrong because I don't like to say this is all wrong, you know, you have to do this, that, something else. But if you can improve something, then it, it helps a lot. And in that car, there were some areas that we, we focused on and did improve the car as we went through the season. People will probably be amazed by the amount of so you've referred to so many teams you've worked for in so many categories. So, Brooks, you even turned up in Formula E um, uh, early on as well. Um, was, was that an interesting area? Because that's another one where there is technical innovation, but it's all what I like to call sort of black box innovation, if you like. It's the, it's the powertrain side, while the car is kind of there and, and set. Yeah, form, Formula E... Um... I, I got, informed, got involved in Formula E with the Venturi team. Um, we had uh, Nick Heidfeld and uh, Stefan Sarazan in the cars. Good drivers, very good drivers. Um, but for, for me, it was... It was uh, I didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't enjoy the, the way Formula E was. Um, I think it, it we we couldn't do anything with the with the chassis if you like okay the normal adjustments but you you were more focused on the energy you know all all this kind of business I I only did it for the first year um I think the the first race we went to um both both of our both of our drivers, Mickey, Mickey Shiruti was driving one of those and uh, Jano Trulli was his team in the other one. Both of them touched the wall and broke the gearbox casing. Um, Jano missed the race because there weren't enough gearbox casings to go around. This kind of thing. It it wasn't great. For for me, it... uh, it wasn't a place where I wanted to be. So did you join the Trilly team after Venturi? How did... Yeah, that that all came about because um, uh, I did the, the testing through, the, through the, the summer, if you like. Most of it was done at Donington with the, with the former E-car, with the Venturi guys. Um, and then um, Supernova took over the the preparation of of the uh, the truly team if you were truly came into um and truly got mickey to drive uh and her her father asked me if if i would change teams and go to work for mickey so you weren't part of Venturi for the first race when Hardfelt nearly won and then in in true Nick Hardfelt fashion came within a hair's breadth of winning and then was put in the wall by Nico Prost <laughs> when he went upside down yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes uh, he, he didn't know what to do there actually because uh, um, they were being told look if if your car stops and the red lights on you jump out of the car without touching any part of it. And Nick was like, well, what do I do now? (laughs) 
but uh, um, yeah, of course they right. were teammates at the time as well. Hardfelt and Prost were were rebellion teammates, and that was another team that that you've worked with in the World Endurance Championship. So it's a small <laughs> a small world. Yes, but the Formula E, I have to say, wasn't for me. Um, I, I'm sure it's con- it's going on leaps and bounds now. At least they can use a car for the entire race, whereas uh, in the beginning you were changing changing cars and all kinds. Um, yeah, it, uh, it it's almost that they they bought it in too soon. If if they'd have waited a little bit, so you could use one car all the time, that would have been a massive difference. One other interesting thing, we talked about how the job has changed. How about drivers? Because obviously in your earlier days you were working with drivers who were perhaps more contemporaries and then later on when you're doing junior single-seaters you're, you're working with much much younger drivers from a from a kind of different era. Do, do drivers change really or, or, or are, are drivers much the same whether you're working with them in the late 70s or or, or, or today? It's very, it's very different outlooks and the, the world changes, doesn't it? It's it's pretty much the same. I mean, we if we talk about drivers in the early part, if if you if we I mean, both these guys are not with us anymore. But if you if you look at Ronnie Peterson, for example, fantastic driver. Um, if you if you put him in the car and he went out and did ten laps, um, he'd come back and say it's not bad, you know, whatever. Um, then. <laughs> It, it, it was sorry if you if you put him in the car and he just did did a few laps five laps he'd come back yeah the car is not too bad um, but then he would start to complain after that but he would change his driving style to suit the deficiency that was in that car in the beginning you know. Um, so Ronnie was, uh, for me, he was he was able to do that. He he almost uh, did part of the engineer's job by changing his style, changing how he drove the car. Um, other drivers, well, Nicky, for example, when he drove the seven two one X March, he, he told Robin it was the worst car he'd ever driven in his life, um, and he was right. But Robin wouldn't accept that, you know. So, you know, from from the from the the driving point of view, or, or working with the drivers, it depends which kind of driver you have. And in terms of personalities, I mean, I, I, I imagine there's not too many personalities like Brian Henton um, that that you've encountered. It was the Tolman F2 time. Uh, it was a fantastic year for Tolman. I mean, you know, first, first time with their own car, um, 1980, uh, Brian and, and Derek in the car, so good good drivers. Um, although it wasn't supposed to be like that, it was supposed to be Derek and Stephen South. But um, Stephen disappeared off from a Vallelunga test that we were doing, and did a test with McLaren and Formula One in Paul Ricard. And um, Alex Hawkridge didn't like that at all, so he, he biffed him, and we got we got Brian to drive again. He was driving for Tolman the previous season. Um, 
We had a we had a great season. I mean, first and second in the European Championship. Uh, what, what more can you ask for? Um, the only thing you can ask for is it's my driver who's first. <laughs> so there was uh, there was competition within that team, without any doubt. Um, I can I can re recall a strange thing where where we would we would get round to the days where you. You had a warm-up on Sunday morning, and we'd go out in the warm-up. Henton would come in, stop, go out again. And if you looked at the timing, this is when the, the girls, the wives and girlfriends were doing a lot of the timing. Um, if you looked at that sheet, he, he was quicker when he went to, out on the second run. So Derek would be said to me, what did he do? What did he do to, to, to find that time? And I said, Derek, they didn't change anything. Nothing whatsoever. Oh, they must have done. You know, so that's, that's a, it was a little bit of showmanship because all that happened is that Brian's wife wrote a different time. <laughs> and that was it. And in in Enna, um, Enna, I think was uh, where we we sort of sewed up the championship, certainly for for Brian. And um, we were we we were happy about that. Obviously, I mean, you, you, your team has has, has won that. Um, we finished first and second. You, you couldn't ask for more. Um, but Brian had to work for it. You know, Derek was was good competition for him, and and uh, be, between us there was uh, there was competition, inter team competition. Um, we we all went out in the evening. We were going to have a dinner, and you know, just relax a bit. You know, it was it was kind of done. Um, Brian punched me. <laughs> He, as we were walking to the restaurant, he just punched me on the chin. And uh, I said, what's that about? And he said, that's for making my life so difficult this year. <laughs> 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 and that shows you how, how it is, you know. <laughs> I, I didn't mind, okay? If you look on my CV, I, I still... Uh, I'm part of South Morton Boxing Club, so, <laughs> so, so I wasn't too worried, really. <laughs> uh, I mean, talking about driver relations, do you have kind of a, a favourite driver that you work with? I'm, I mean, in terms of professionally, in terms of they gave the right level of feedback. They weren't trying to engineer the card themselves, but they, they were someone you had a particularly good rapport with that you feel you got the best out of each other. Is there one that stands out? I mean, there's so many drivers on there. It's probably it takes a while to to think through them. Uh, okay, um, Jill, when he did drive the Canam car, was good. Now uh, the Wolf in '77. Yeah. Yes, it was very good. Um, mo moving on from those guys in in uh, in GP2, for example, uh, Alvaro Parente, uh, Luca Felipe. Um, in the uh, in the endurance cars, Andrea, oh, sorry, um, Luca Filippi, uh, Andrea Baliki in the in the endurance car, um, 
very, very good drivers. Very good drivers. Essentially, you picked some of the more recent ones as well there, just from a, uh, you know, drivers people might not instantly, because they didn't necessarily get to Formula One, but very, 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 very skilled, capable drivers. They're good drivers. Uh, um, Okay, Luca Felipe would have loved to drive Formula One, I think, but... um, but people like Andrea, you didn't you didn't have that feeling that he was wanting to go there. He was he was at the top level in, in endurance car racing. Um, it's good for him, and he, he was he was doing very well. You know he 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 was the ideal guy to have in an endurance team uh, because we had uh, Harold Primat in the other car, and um, he. He was um, he was more of a gentleman driver, um, but you know, without Andrea in the car, that that car, car number thirteen, wouldn't have run as well. You know, um, the form the Formula One drivers. Well, <laughs> um, most most of my time was with uh, Derek, I would say. Because um, I was with him in the Tolman days from from eighty one through to eighty four, then I joined Alpha. Um, we had Patrese and uh, Chiva. Uh, Ricardo was very good because I came across him again at Brabham a few years later. Um, um, my my friend Elio De Angelis, of course, was very good. And you had several spells with with Derek um, across three different teams, um, you know. Off and and then of course later on you went into business with him at Triple Eight. Um, we, we all know Derek Warwick as, as a driver who was supremely quick. Had the had the sports car success that unfortunately eluded him in Formula One, but. Um, from your rise, seeing how he developed from you know a driver that you worked with in Formula Two, through Formula One, and you know throughout that crucial period of his career as he was establishing himself, just how good was he to work with? Yeah, I think I mean obviously Derek is a is a very good friend of mine. I'm godfather to his eldest eldest daughter Marie, and so on. We we were very close. Um, and he he was a very good driver. Okay, he didn't win a Formula One race, a, a Grand Prix. He was close, I think, in Brazil one time. Um, but he um, he was for for me he was still a, a good driver. Um, when when I left Tolman, I left Tolman at the end of '84. Um, I was Johnny Chicotto's engineer there, and uh, Johnny had a big shunt in in Brands um, and damaged his his legs. Um, the other car was being driven by one Ayrton Senna at the time. I think I've heard of him. <laughs> and uh, obviously, even in the even in the beginning of his Formula One career, very very good. You know, you knew he was going to be good, and all the focus was on was on Ayrton for sure. Um, after after Johnny had his had his accident, um, in in those days you you could jump in the ambulance and go, 
to see what had happened. Um, and when I arrived there, I was, well, I mean, he was seriously injured. Um, they they were talking about amputating part of his foot or something. And, and then Sid came, Sid Watkins was around at that time. And he said, no, 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 we just stabilize him and take him to hospital. That's what happened. I went to the hospital with him and all that kind of thing. So I missed what was going on at Brands Hatch as, as the race meeting. Um, and I was, I was disappointed a little bit with some of the, the uh, some of the management at Tolman that they, I'm not going to say they didn't care, but they weren't concerned about Johnny. Um, Really, when we got to the hospital, um, the, the, the the surgeon said, "Look, you know, we we're going to have to remove his foot." And I said, "Look, you can't do that. You, you have to just stabilise him." Got hold of um, his girlfriend, who who wasn't with him for the first time ever. She wasn't with him, um, and his father and her father, sorry, and um, and they came over. And they organised to fly him out of St Mary's, I think it is, in in uh, Bromley, on the Wednesday morning. He he went back to Munich, had some 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 more treatment on his legs, and um, we all know that Johnny recovered, not to to come back into Formula One, but into touring cars. And um, for for me, that was. Mm, um, I don't know. That was that was my turning point in Tolman, if you like, which is why I went to Alpha. Um, Alpha was <laughs> Alpha was a disaster for me because, well, basically they never paid me, <laughs> um, so that was uh, a bit of a problem. Is it fair to say they didn't really let you have your sort of your say in the design as well because? I read a, an interview where Ricardo Patrese said that the 85 car was, was one of the worst he ever drove. But mm. he said that, you know, a, a large element of that was down to the lag, was down to the engine with its consumption not being very good and the chassis and um, the uh, aerodynamics being effectively compromised by what the owner, Paolo Pavanello, wanted for the aesthetics of the car. And so the whole thing was a bit of a, a shambles, really. Uh, yeah, you, you you could say it. for me it was a shambles, to be honest. Um, well, for me what happened, I, I made a contract with Auto Delta. Um, but when it came down to the crunch, the car's being run by Pavanello from Euro Racing. Um, there was um, there was a new monocoque. I I had to to go backwards and forwards from Euro Racing Pavanello's workshop to Auto Delta um, twice a week to explain what's going on and so on and so forth. Um, once they'd um, built the the chassis, built the monocoque, they decided that they would run the old suspension on that monocoque which was for me no good it wasn't gonna it wasn't the job if you like so that car although it it, it turned out and, and people um, 
so that was one of my cars. I mean, it, it was in, in as much as I was supposedly the, the chief designer there at the time, but the, the finished product wasn't as it would have been if, if I'd have stayed there. I, I, I was a bit disillusioned when all this happened. Okay, maybe people said, oh, yeah, it can only happen in Italy, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But um, um, so I was, as I say, a bit disillusioned about it all. You know, you're not actually building the car you want to build. You're, you're being 50% of one and 50% of the other or whatever. Um, Derek phoned me and uh, he, he'd just had his first year at Renault. And he said, oh, how are you getting on and all that? So we, we talked a bit and he said, why don't you come and work for Renault? So I said, well, Renault, big factory team, they, they are not going to give me a job, you know. And he said, mm, I'll tell you what, I think they will. And uh, he came back a little bit later and he said, yes, you know, Renault are really interested. Um, so, you know, uh, get over here and, and have a meeting with them. So I, I went there. Um, I still wasn't getting paid from Auto Delta, so at the end, even at the end of '84, I, I didn't go back. I don't think um, into the '85 because you're reading your CV. Your it, it says there that your job, as well as you know being involved on, on the design side, was you were chief race engineer, and that's something that we see nowadays. With you know, there's various confusing levels of the hierarchy of. Of Formula One teams where you're trying to work out actually who is responsible for, you know, having the primary interfacing role with the driver. Um, could you explain a little bit about how, you know, your role at Alpha on the, you know, on that side of it compared to, you know, say directly race engineering Derek at, um, at Tolman and, and Renault and, and Brabham and, and so on? Yeah, I, uh, well, f first of all, I, I didn't even get to run the car. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I wasn't chief of anything right. in the end. But um, I, I think a, a, a chief engineer is a guy who these days, um, is he wants to get the best out of all the guys there, the, the data men, all, all this kind of thing. There's a lot going on there the tire people, the whole bit. If, if, you can, if you can bring all those people together, um, you, you've got to have some kind of harmony there that, um, you're going to, if you're going to get the best result out of the car. So you've got the driver, you've got the data man, you, you've got a tire man. These, these three guys are important. Um, you, the, the mechanics even you know, what, what they do, how they do it. Um, it's, it's trying to oversee the whole thing and, and be happy yourself that you're doing the best you can. Because that was a, you know, a, an interesting period where, as you know, we, we covered before, you, you, you signed up with Renault and then that all fell apart and you then went to Brabham. And I've, I find it interesting because we, we asked about the best drivers that you work with, but, at Brabham, you then encountered Gordon Murray. So, you know, you've worked with Rory Byrne, you've worked with Gordon Murray, you've worked with Robin Hurd. At, at Walkinshaw, you worked with, with, with Tom. Um, 
as you know, it is a who's who of motorsport and encountering great minds. Um, where do you think you know some of these, these these top people rank in terms of you know their their contribution to, to motorsport and and just just who who you look to as the most you know inspiring of, of the people that that you worked alongside? I'll put you on the spot there. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> the most inspiring. Um, Robin was a good guy. Uh, I I always thought of Robin that he he would keep giving you work. So he'd give you a job. I want this, I want that, I want something else. And at the same time, he'd come along and give you another job. And he'd give you another job. Until you were in too deep. You know, either you slowed down or, or you weren't you weren't giving him back what he wanted. Um, and then he would say, okay, forget about that bit. Just carry on with those three. So he, he was a good guy to, to know when you were overloaded, if you like. Um, other, other people, to, to be honest with you, one of, one of the guys I, I had most respect for as a, as a designer and, um, and a race engineer was Maurice Philippe. Um, I, I encountered Morris. He, he did a little bit of, of, um, consultancy work with, uh, Fittipaldi. Um, but then I encountered him at, uh, Tyrrell's. Um, we, we, we did the 008 together. And that was a funny thing because he, he, he got hold of me and said, Oh, you know, what are you doing? And I said, Well, cause I'd known him at, at Fittipaldi and uh, I think I'd just come back from the Can-Am thing and um, he he said look I'm at Tyrrell's I've got to draw their new car blah 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 um, would would you come and join so I said yes okay immediately um, when I got down there myself and Morris were working in a like a double garage down the corner of the, the wood yard because we weren't actually allowed in the in the the main drawing office um, until Derek Gardner left. So there was a little bit of a crossover there. But um, Morris was great. He was was brilliant uh, for me. He he not only had the ideas, but he was happy to sit there and tell you why. You know, it wasn't like, this is a car, do it like this, you know, and that's it some some chief designers or whatever are like that you know they'll 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 draw a car or some of them don't even draw but some of them do do draw a certain amount and say oh it has to be exactly like that but morris morris gave you confidence that the bits you were going to detail design were good he was he was a very good guy one job I just wanted to ask about, you did mention in passing, um, obviously with, with Bravin was Elio De Angelis, who you worked with relatively briefly. Um, obviously, his, uh, that was a season he, he lost his life. Um, but uh, by all accounts, uh, a very likeable guy and a, a very capable driver as well. Elio was, uh, yeah, Elio was great. A, a fantastic team guy. Um, uh, any, anywhere we went, um, he, he, when he was karting, he... he 
he lost a little bit of one of his fingers because choke, choking the carburetor, he, he caught it between chain and sprocket. Um, and yet he would, uh, he could still play the piano to, to concert level. I reckon in places we went, you know, he, if we were sitting somewhere and there's a piano there, he'd go there and start playing. You know, he, he was, uh, he was a very laid back guy. Uh, unfortunately his, his time with, with me was really short. Um, we, the, the BT 55 was, was not one of Gordon's best cars for sure. Um, but we, we, um, I remember Bernie told us that after the first race in Brazil, we, we had to stay there because we had all the information about the other teams, how quick they were, blah, 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 what sector times they had and this and that. And he said, look, I want you to improve this car. So you're going to stay here for a week. Gordon didn't want to do that. Gordon went to Imola. I think because in those days there was a, a five-day Formula One test in Imola. So he went there um, saying that he wanted to keep an eye on the opposition and all that kind of thing. But in that, in that week, I think we ran for three days or something, and then in between we were modifying the car. But we, we moved the intercoolers. We did a, a lot of stuff um, to, to that car. Um, and we did improve it a little bit. And that was with help from, from Elio, for sure. Um, one, of, well, one of the problems of it for me is I, I thought it was too long in the wheelbase. Um, and because uh, the, the car didn't, um, um, if you like, the traction was, was not good. It was good on braking because the the weight distribution was was not as high if you like so it it was it was not bad under braking but where you want to put a bit of traction on the rear it it wasn't enough for the, that length wheelbase um after after elio's accident bernie came along and and said what do you think is wrong with this car so we we all thought it was too long and he, he said, uh, Derek, Derek had just signed for him after Elio's uh, death. And um, he said, uh, your, your mate, is, he, when, Derek, when Derek started, he had a brand new car. We went to Donington. He crashed it. Yeah. Um, it was in the workshop. He said to me, take that monocoque that your mate crashed, <laughs> blaming me. <laughs> and he said, do what you want to do with it to make it shorter. And that car was designed, it had a, a machined rear bulkhead for the, for the fuel, fuel cell. So we could take that out, we cut eight inches out of it and put it back in basically, wrapped up the, the fuel cell, rubber fuel cell, and went out and drove it. Ricardo thought it was better, um, and that was that was something that that we could do, you know. Um, um, and 
Bernie was like, well, you know, why can't we do it? Because you won't have enough fuel, Bernie, basically. <laughs> and, and that was it. And of course, we should say with mention of, of Derek Warwick, the driver, you're also, along with Derek, one of the founder members of, of Triple Eight, which had a huge amount of success. It was formed for the BTCC in 1997 originally, but tremendously effective team. We haven't really had time to even get into that yet. I want to say one thing about Triple Eight. It was a, a deal we made to, together. Um, that was you, Derek, Roland Dane and Ian Harrison. Yeah, that's right. But it was it was called, in my, for me, it was called Triple Eight Race Engineering. And what I wanted out of that was for us to to get involved in some other categories, not necessarily racing ourselves, but helping other people race. Yeah, so doing four post rig tests, do, doing uh, anything kind of, kind of uh, trying to evaluate their cars and, and suggest things with their cars. We, we did it once with Volkswagen in Argentina. We, we got a, a fax, it shows you how long ago it was, and uh, they were asking if if we would go out to Argentina and help them when they were doing some track testing. Um, so I, I saw the facts and I thought, yeah, it's quite interesting to do. Went to Roland and, and Ian and so on. Derek was not often in the workshop. And uh, said, what do you think? You know, I, I think it'd be good idea if we can get involved with someone like that and um, Roland said no he didn't want to do it whatsoever so he said in the end he said okay tell him you'll come but you want 1500 quid a day right <laughs> so thinking they would just say okay throw it in the bin they came back and said yes so I went there I think uh, I went three times I think um, to help them with their 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 setup and everything in testing, um, they were happy. They they did improve. The drivers liked it. Uh, the TC two thousand car that they raced down there, a yeah, competitive uh, series as well. Yes, very competitive. And uh, and then uh, they came back to to me at the after that. Will you come to a race with us? And uh, yes, okay, we can do that. Same deal. Um, and it was good, you know. I don't think it detracted at all from what we were doing with British Touring Car. Um, Roland did, but um, then they they came along to us and said, "Look, uh, next next year we're going to to build a, a car around the Bora, the Volkswagen Bora. Um, would Triple Eight do the base design work for us?" And I agreed to that as well i mean it was it wasn't money for old rope if you like but it was it was good money to to keep us keep us going and all that kind of thing i was i was very um i don't know not not concerned but we we were getting reasonable money from Vauxhall, but we had 50 something 53 people i think in that in that business solely doing british touring car you know, and that worried me a little bit, you know, because you're responsible for for those people. 
um, and I was I was trying to find ways where we could um, we would be okay, even if we weren't winning in British Touring Car, we would still be okay. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the the others didn't see the same same thing as me, which is why I got out of it. Has been uh, fantastic to get that insight. So thank you very much. No, thank you for for inviting me. I, I hope it works out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been it's been fascinating. So thank you. Do check out autosport.com for all the latest from the world of Formula One and the rest of motorsport. Of course, there'll be a huge amount of Le Mans 24-hour coverage on this weekend. Also, check out our Plus Subscriber area where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalists. Autosport Magazine, of course, is out every Thursday and July the 4th will be the next edition of Autosport Engineering, the supplement that James Newbold edits. Do check out sister titles motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and Motorsport News out every Wednesday. And also remember to subscribe to the Autosport podcast if you haven't already. We're out every Monday and Thursday, all the usual places, iTunes, normal podcast deliverers. And you can also like us on the Spreaker website. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This year is your year, even if you also said that in 2022. And however you want to make a splash, Mother Nature can help you every step of the way with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Wool Runner Mizzles are shoes made from premium, supernatural, weather-repellent materials. So you can jump into this year with both feet, rain or shine. The high-top uppers are made from temperature-regulating, moisture-wicking merino wool treated with durable puddle guard technology to keep you dry and comfy. And you can take confident strides with supernatural rubber treads that grip for all-conditioned traction and sugarcane-based sweet foam midsoles that put a little bounce in each step. Allbirds is constantly innovating to increase the performance and longevity of their earth-friendly materials. So even on your toughest outings, you'll wear out before your shoes do. This year, make a splash without worrying about getting your feet wet with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot Sports Social Podcast Network.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.